without further delay, let's get to our discussion of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell tonight, because we have, uh, um, we have, oh, I really need to finish this, and, uh, and I am just, like I said, I, I'm, I'm like, was literally out of breath on several occasions today, as I've been kind of immersing myself in episode seven today. I've just been, I like absolutely breathless. I, I mean, okay, I'm not gonna lie. Watching episode seven for the first time, um, I don't know what you guys thought of it or how it hit you, but I was crying like a baby for like the whole second half of the of the episode. I mean, oh man, it was so beautiful. I mean, it actually was highly comical if you could have seen me, which I'm awfully glad nobody could, but I'm sitting here, um, uh, in my, uh, uh, in my deluxe basement office here. And, uh, you know, so I'm watching the film, but I have to take notes, right? Cause I'm, you know, teaching us. So I, I was, you know, I'm, as I'm going, I'm making note of, you know, the timestamp on particular scenes that I might want to come back to and stuff. So, but, but here I am, I'm watching this and I'm like trying to type my notes, you know, and I'm all like, <laughs> so, it's so pitiful. Um, but oh my goodness. Uh, and I mean, it's just like, after watching it, after, you know, getting through the last episode for the first time, I was just sort of, I mean, I can't remember having been affected to this degree by a film in a really long time. It was so good. And a large part of, I think, why it hit me so hard is that it was, did such an incredible job. I was so not disappointed. That is, it did such an amazing job of tying together almost everything that it brought in. I mean, like, I, goodness, the, when John Segundus runs off to get his spell to join together things that are parted, which, of course, happens in the opening scene of the, of the very first episode, right? And as soon as I, you know, and he's just like, I have a spell. And I was just like, I just like burst into tears again. I was just like, it's so like the way that everything comes together, the, the extent to which this film and the, the, the elegance with which this film just leaves no loose end untied. I just, um, I was, I was just stunned. Um, so anyway, it was, um, uh, it was, just absolutely fantastic. I, and I don't want to spend the whole our whole time just kind of raving. Um, uh, but anyway, I I I do just I just want to register this and also kind of apologize at the beginning. As I the other thing that I was feeling sort of in the back of my mind as I was watching episode seven was this sort of a sense of despair, like there is no way I can possibly. T- I mean, I would need another five classes just to talk about episode seven. That is just to sort of show, you know, to to try to to really go through all of the way that everything is brought together. Um, oh, there's just way way too much, and it is so. Um, so tightly woven together. I mean, the way that they splice scenes together was so masterfully done. I just, wow. Um, I am, uh, I, I have uh, elevated, I mean, this is, it's been rising in my estimation all the way through, even with the way in which, I mean, the sort of rumor that I had heard about the miniseries was that, you know, it departed from the book a very great deal more at the end, so I was kind of braced for that. Um, but I just, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I ended up, there was a moment, there was one moment 
where I was like, oh, what the heck is going on here? Which I suspect you all know, of course, it's the moment when Stephen Black gets shot. And I was like, come on now. We're not... We're we're not playing that way, are we? Uh, that was the only that was the one moment of doubt. But afterwards, I was like, ah, I was a fool to have doubted. Um, just loved it. I I I, I continue, um, even at the end of episode seven, to stand by what I've been saying for the last couple of classes. That I am just uh, absolutely delighted uh, and extremely impressed with the choices that they have made in the adaptation. Um, I can't think of another example where a filmmaker has deviated from the book in the way that this one does, and yet so effectively, you know, but not not to end up in a different place, right? Not just saying, I'm kind of hijacking the story, which, you know, like, an adapter has a right to do if they want to hijack it and just, you know, take it off on a different set of rails and go in a different direction you know they're retelling the story that's what they can you know they can do that that's what happens when you ha- when you have you know retellings and adaptations um as i've said before you know of course we talked about this a lot in the context of t- discussing the hobbit movies and riddles in the dark um it's like retelling the king arthur story right you know you read back over generations and centuries of you know the different ways in which that story was taken and treated and uh you know uh, pushed in different directions and made to serve different ideological purposes and all these other things like that's what it's about you know that's what happens when uh, that's that's what happens to good stories so that's fine um but uh but that wasn't what was happening here right uh it it, it so anyway just just absolutely absolutely blown away by that um I, having now watched the whole thing i think i think that i would say and of course you know this is a silly kind of generalized statement to make but i basically put it in my top two favorite adaptations of all time i mean i i as far as adaptations that i think just do a, a really really admirable job of 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 interacting with the book and um and sort of uh really thinking through and and dealing with the bookstore the other of course being the uh uh being pride and prejudice the bbc that colin firth uh, Pride and Prejudice is is has been for many years uh, in my mind like the gold standard of film adaptations of books. I mean, it's just hard to hard to top that one. Um, but boy, I didn't expect that this was really going to be a competitor uh, for that. But wow. Um, anyway, okay, enough uh, gushing, and on to concrete analysis. Let, let me. Uh, uh, let me let me root my uh, my enthusiasm in uh, in in something concrete here. So okay, um, I we're gonna go back a little bit. Oh, did I mention I'm not gonna do a good job of covering the whole thing, and I'm not even gonna make an attempt. There's so many elements of this uh, of the end of this story that I just I'm not even gonna really even have time to wave my hands at. So I just want to kind of recognize uh lady pole you know the 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 culmination of the deviation of lady pole's character how they've um sort of raised the profile of lady pole's character made her this sort of consistently uh defiant and in the end uh, you know actively valiant character just just really admired uh what they did with lady pole um uh, you know, but I, I don't even. I we don't even have time to. You know, John Segundus. Uh, I'm not going to be able to have time to really talk about John Segundus either. Vinculus. We'll talk about Vinculus some, but um, but uh, I still won't be able to do as much with Vinculus as I would uh, as I would quite like. Um, but let's go back 
and I want to I want to I want to look at two passages. I've tried to restrict. I only have twelve clips that I want to show today instead of coming in with like twenty as I've done for the last couple of classes. There are only twelve, though. I have to admit that I've cheated, and a couple of them are a little bit long. But uh, anyway, we'll do what we can here. Um, this is. Uh, I want to think about. Fairy, England and Fairy, and the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, and Jonathan's interactions with him. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, okay. Oh yes, John, I loved the way in which uh, Lady Pole's reference, you know, her, her characterization of him uh, as having thistle-down hair at the very end, um, and the way John that that's rendered into an insult, which he finds deadly insulting. Loved it, loved it, loved. That was just fantastic. Uh, one of my favorite uh, Lady Pole moments. <clears throat> um, but uh, see, but John, this is one of the things I was sorely tempted when planning class to. In- I really wanted to include a certain, you know, scenes like that. But I tried very scrupulously not to include <clears throat> clips that I wanted to include merely because I wanted to say, "Wasn't that awesome?" And let's talk about how awesome that was. Um, I, 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 that is, I will be saying that about some of these passages, but I wanted to make sure to restrict myself to passages about which I have more to say than only that. Um, but wasn't it awesome? Though? Glad we, 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 we can acknowledge that, <clears throat> at least in passing, uh, before we, we move on. This, of course, is the abduction of Arabella. And I found this, uh, I, I think this is a really interesting and important moment because <clears throat> one of the things that, of course, we see in uh, uh, in the this adaptation is the way in which the simple abduction of humans into fairy is de-emphasized in favor of compacts and contracts, right? Bargains. Um, bargains, of course, were a, a, an important element of fairy in the book as well. Um, but abduction is a major theme uh, in the book. That is, it's one of the, the sort of the chief acknowledged, well, I was going to say functions of fairies. It's not quite right. Um, <laughs> I was going to say features. That's not quite right either. Um, uh, elements, things fairies do, right? Abduction is, is one, of the, one of the things that fairies in the book are best known for. Um, and we, again, we don't really, that, that's de-emphasized. And instead, the emphasis is placed on, uh, on, on bargains in compact. So I wanted to show the abduction of Arabella and think about wh- how, because again, this to me is a crucial moment. This is the closest we get to a simple um, uh, sort of one-sided abduction. We looked at the moment where Stephen comes in and the way, you know, the extent to which, like, how much is his will involved in that? And, you know, by what right has he been enslaved um, by uh, by the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, which I still think is a really important moment in retrospect. Um, and in fact, that moment really, I think, becomes even more important uh, in retrospect as we as we go through the rest of the uh, the rest of the film. But anyway, so let's look at this moment and see what we see. So here's Arabella already in the coach, right? Which, remember, she entered with her own will. She wasn't, like, swept away and dragged off. I love this vista. The border, the bridge between Ferry and England, right? Um, I love how this is handled. I love the contrast, of course. You know, you get complete 
blacks and whites, right? This absolutely desolate-looking dead wood and blackened ground. It looks like, it almost, this looks like it might be foliage, perhaps. But other than that, it looks like fire has swept through. This looks like, you know, post-apocalyptic, like post-forest fire uh, world over here. It's, 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 it's a blasted land. Um, the interesting thing to me is the contrast on the other side, right? Uh, the, the, this view, especially just getting a glimpse, not pausing for a very long time, as I'm doing now, when you just kind of glimpse it as she's riding across the bridge, you get the impression of, like, lush green England versus blasted dark and fairy, right? But of course, the, uh, the, 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 the thing that's interesting when you really pause and look at it is... Yeah, it's true that the English countryside does look, uh, you know, gr- living and green and uh, and uh, 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 you know lush compared to fairy. But if you just like kind of cover the fairy side, right, and look only at Eng- at the England side, that wouldn't be how you'd describe it, right? It, it, it yeah, Mark exactly. By contrast, it looks like a green and pleasant land. But again, if you just look at this, you would describe this as like a blasted heath, right? I mean, it's not, this is not exactly lush, fertile, beautiful land, right? This is like a barren moor over here. And yet, the barren moors of England are lush and pleasant compared with fairy, right? So I, it's, it's just, it's, it's so well done. And yet there's this gulf in, in between. Um, look at the way... Um, the way yeah, Mark points out that the weather is continuous, right? Uh, the I love the the sort of the contrast there, right? On the one hand, there's a chasm in between, right? It's not a wide chasm and it's a bridged chasm, but it's still just a bridge over a chasm. So there's this idea of this of this this very real, very important split. They don't just border each other, right? You don't just walk across from you know you don't just step from one into the other. You have to cross a bridge over a, over a gulf. And, Mark, as you point out, the weather is continuous, right? So that, so, you know, th- those two things suggest both the closeness and contiguity and yet uh, division, uh, that, that sharp division between the two of them. Um, Michael, I was very surprised how Stephen is an active participant in the abduction, too. Um, and it does make Stephen look more like an accomplice than a victim. Stephen's relationship with this throughout, I think, is interesting. Well, we'll come back to this. I want to um, end with looking at Stephen. So, Michael, make sure to bring this up again later on, but we'll look at him more in a second here. So, okay. Anyway, here we are, going off into fairy. Here's, of course, the moss oak showing up. What have you been? Walking. In the woods, with my brothers and sisters, madam. Please. See, Michael, I don't know what to make of that. Please, you see. Um, I mean, yes. On the one hand, of course, he still does rather look like an accomplice, but uh, at the same time, that that begging, right? That please, you know, he's not he's not just doing. Uh, the gentleman's. There seems to. I mean, is he just saying saying this out of fear for himself, like please, or I will be punished, or does he th- really think that he's trying to spare her from something that he, you know, for your own sake? That's what his expression and his tone of voice seem to me to suggest, 
right? Come with me, please. Um, he doesn't seem to be begging for... He's, he's not fearful on his own account, but he seems to be actually um, actually looking out for her. Um, again, I think his, his, his relationship uh, with the gentleman, his uh, activity in this way, is uh, kind of uh, ambiguous, I think. Of course you are. Of course you're my wife. You, you accept me. Your wife. Yes, yes. Madam, madam, we must make it. Please. You are not all otherwise. Of course I do, of course. With all my heart. Where is my friend? I'm sorry, madam. Madam! Welcome to Lost Hope. And the way in which they, you know, this whole scene really makes the name of Lost Hope resonate, you know, especially with Lady Paul looking all downcast in the background. Um, Very, very cool. Um... We see him with his sinister yet genuinely welcoming, you know, like, I remember he believes that she's going to be happy here, right? He, he, he thinks that um, his, her husband obviously doesn't, uh, doesn't love her, has abandoned her. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so the trickiness, right, Karita? We do see the bargain, right? He, says that he takes the moss oak as his wife and uh you know and 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 renounces all other wives so he has technically not exactly bargained her not exactly swapped her as as the you know the 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 gentleman accuses him of later on saying that he's he has uh, uh exchanged her for a uh for a lump of wood but um of course he's been he's been tricked but he does engage his own will and yet you can see the way in which he's being manipulated how he believes that he is expressing his acceptance and affection for Arabella when she looks vulnerable right in fact she's kind of talking crazy which in context is really cool right and we didn't even talk about this in the book though that same thing because it anticipates it right we hadn't really gotten to the madness stuff fully yet um at that point and yet the madness of Arabella, the apparent madness of Arabella, um, is uh, uh, again. This is in in as as we see in so many other things. It's actually lucidity. So so we see how in the adaptation we have we. It's still an abduction, right? He has still taken her, um, but he has to do the the the, the mechanism of the abduction is still to get both of them now, both Arabella and um, uh, and Jonathan, to enter into this of their free will. She got into the coach and left her husband's house of her own free will. He renounced her in exchange for the moss oak of his own free will, right? Um, both of them are being deceived to do these things under false... Uh, pretenses, but that's part of the bargain, right? That's apparently 
how these things work. Um, let's look at this is of course the conversation between Jonathan and the fairy this is now that was the last one was episode 5 this is episode 6 um, when he has succeeded in conjuring up the fairy and seeing it this is the uh, second exchange that they have um, no yes anyway yeah um, so and um so this is after, of course, he's taken the tincture of madness, uh, which he has made, and we see, and I, I love the fact that how they connect his desire for a fairy servant with his desire to raise Arabella from the dead. I thought that was a wonderful innovation. I just absolutely loved the way that tied so many things together. Um, but anyway, let's look at this one here. So I regret to tell you that it would be quite quite impossible for me to bring your wife back from the dead. I am sorry. Notice the wonderful equivocation, right? Of course it's quite impossible for him to bring her, his wife back from the dead because she isn't really dead, right? But of course it's, you know, the, the marvelous half-truth there. I've been working for it all this time. I've sacrificed a great many things. I've done it all in the fervent hope that you would bring my wife back to me. No? Well, that is... Listen to the music in the background, right? The, the piteous expression and voice of Jonathan, right? As you can hear his pain, this is um, sort of the, the culmination of his grieving for his wife, the the, the the final end. We thought he was already at the final end, right? We saw his failures to raise his wife by his own magic, right? To find any means and and the his actually relenting to have her buried seemed to be um his uh his his sort of final defeat and the final uh sort of advancing to that next stage of grief, you know, advancing to, to some kind of acceptance, and yet, of course, we see that has not been the case, right? He's just shifted his ground. Uh, but this now is the moment when he's being told, having conjured the fairy, having uh, 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 and now being told that it's just not possible. And again, I'd like to listen to the very gently, the music swelling in the background. Just your heart goes out to him in this moment of horrible vulnerability and grief. Shame. I've pictured it. What it would be like to see her again, sir. Oh. The smell of her. The image of her face in my mind. All these things that I'm beginning to not quite remember. Oh, you're killing me. And every day that she went further from me, I consoled myself with the thought that she will be close to me again. Oh, he's begging. Oh, it's awful. Right? I mean, how tragic this is. And how moving this is. I mean, it's like you would have to have a heart of stone, right? Not to be moved by the appeal of the bereaved husband in this... Oh! Come. There must be something else you desire. A kingdom of your own. A beautiful new companion. 
whoosh, right? Now, what do we see here? And this, I think, is 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 uh, just incredible, right? Um, on the one hand, we see the inhumanity of the fairy, right? The inhumanity of the gentleman. And we talked about this a lot in the book, about how he just doesn't really get people. Um, and that was, I think, much much more emphasized in the book. This is one of the things that, we, and we've talked about this before, the way that the gentleman in the film gets shifted from sort of fundamentally alien being in some ways to sort of amoral Machiavellian schemer um, uh, who is willing to uh, sort of use and discard human tools uh, and to collect, you know, humans as objects. Um, but again, not his motivations, though often masked, were not fundamentally alien, I think, anyway, at most points through. This is one moment where that seems to come across, but there are two things that prevent this from hitting me in the same way as those moments in the book where he just, again, was the, the mere otherness um, of the fairy and the fairy mindset. Um, seemed to me so strongly emphasized in the book. And one place, uh, one one reason for that is that there's a parallel. That is to say, yes, he's completely unmoved by Jonathan, right? He's decided that he hates Jonathan uh, for really very little good reason, right? Um, but he's decided that he hates Jonathan, and so he's sort of arbitrarily set against Jonathan Strange, and his heart is utterly unmoved even by these really moving situations. But he's not the only one who's like that. And uh, that is to say, we already have a model for this in Henry LaSalle's. I mean, goodness, when that scene earlier on, when uh, Norrell gets the letter from Strange, right, promising, we looked at this before, you know, promising to renounce magic and do anything that he asks, if only, and then, and, and LaSalle's complete, um, complete obliviousness to, you know, the, 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 the utter lack of regard for uh, anything like human feeling. Um, even, you know, Childemus's rebuke to LaSalle's uh, in that moment. Um, Mr. Norrell is obviously moved to um, uh, to to compassion for Strange, um, and ch- which Childemus, of course, recognizes. Um, but yet, yeah, so Nancy, I agree, oblivious isn't the right word, um, but yet yeah, totally uncaring, absolutely callous, right, with uh, absolutely no regard uh, for the, you know, the feelings or well-being of anybody else. Um, so, again, the point is, Lascelles has already shown us that in a human Right, so when we see it here in the gentleman, it's not beyond the pale. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't strike me in the context of the film as like, wow, that's inhuman, right? No, Um, I mean he's a jerk, but he's not the only jerk, and he's not even that much more of a jerk uh, than some of the humans that we've seen. Again, in my mind, especially Lascelles. So. Um, so, so absolutely, I, I think that that's one thing which sort of mitigates this, sort of seeing this as that kind of a, a, a sort of evidence of, of his alienness. But of course, the other is the horrible, horrible irony of this whole moment, right? Him asking 
the you know the, there's an irony in him calling him up and asking him to raise somebody from I mean, the parallel with the lady pole situation of course already makes this ironic in ways that Jonathan doesn't understand but of course it's ironic in ways way past that right um you know that the way in which we as the viewers know that this is Jonathan begging the very guy who has kidnapped his wife and orchestrated the entire thing and is holding her against her i mean uh of course that that irony is to me i think the really central experience that we get here um and it makes it compounds i think anyway compounds the compassion that we feel for Jonathan um but again, we can, if the gentleman is unmoved by Jonathan's suffering, well, we know why he's unmoved, right? Um, so again, it really changes this conclusion, result. Again, in my view, the result is that the, you know, the, we, we're not encouraged to look at the fairy as in some way other, like, you know, even to, remember when, when we were talking about the book and I was making sort of, you know, uh, well, not exactly a devil's advocate, a gentleman with a thistle-down hair's advocate, uh, argument uh, in his favor, right, about how maybe he's not really that bad. Um, and of course, I didn't really mean that, but you remember when we were talking about that, there is a way you can look at this from his perspective. Um, it's possible to see it from his perspective and almost, at least, be okay with that perspective. You know, it's possible to think maybe he's just misunderstood in some way because he is really hard to understand. Not here, right? Um, I think the film doesn't um, uh, doesn't really allow us that as a possibility. I don't understand. There was a woman in England, Lady Paul. Lady Paul was a different matter entirely. Princess Pauline Borghese is a most delightful woman. I can have her here in the twinkling of an eye. Who's the last English magician you dealt with? Mm. What did you do for him? You do not wish to know. No. You, you do not wish to know. These matters are not important. Who was the last English magician you dealt with? I do not have to tell you that. What token did he give you? I do not. Bring it to me! Bring me what you gained from your last dealings with an English magician. No. It is worthless. Utterly a binding agreement. I think you said. Bring it to me. Um, have I mentioned how much I love the score also? Oh, so good. Anyway, um, I love the reversal from the book. Of course, you remember, in the book, part of the... Uh, one of the things that makes the ending of the book have the effect that it has, which I love, right? And I love it. Remember how excited I was talking about this when we were just talking about the book. And this is why, by the way, I didn't let myself even watch the, the miniseries at all until we'd finished talking about the book because I didn't... And I'm super glad now that I didn't. Um, but uh, remember in the book, one of the things that drove the entire... Uh, central storyline as we moved into the last third of the book was the fact that nobody involved really understood anything of anything else that was happening, 
right? Jonathan puts things together more than anybody else, but even he doesn't really understand things. And we see that, of course, emphasized in the parallel scene in the book, where he comes to the fairy, and we know that his attitude towards the fairy is perfectly genial, right? He's actually, uh, you know, just trying to kind of kiss up to the fairy and get on his good side, um, and asks out of, like, mere curiosity and in complete innocency of heart uh, for Tim to give him the token that he last, you know, the, 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 the token he, he received from the last English magician he worked with. His, his reason for asking that seems to be entirely academic curiosity, right? He wants to know what uh, English magician he worked with, so maybe this will give him a hint, right? But of course, you'll remember, the gentleman responds to this and is convinced that Jonathan Strange is setting up to destroy him, right? He means to destroy me, Stephen! Remember that? Um, and so again, the the fact that you know, we talked all you know all the way through the book about the you know the the sort of the the levels of understanding and how much how much more we understand how we have an almost but not quite Raven Kingly point of view right at the end of the book, um, and uh, uh, and it's it's you know, it's it's how I would how I think I would sort of describe the experience of being at the end of that book is that. You know, we go from being kind of lost and not really certain at all what's going on and knowing so much less than everybody else at the beginning of the book to kind of the reader standing, in a sense, almost shoulder to shoulder with the Raven King, looking down at everything else at the end. So cool how she does that. Um, so I just love how that stuff and the, the ignorance of the characters and how people doing things inadvertently and not understanding the full consequences of what they're doing brings all of these events to pass and you begin to see the hand of the Raven King moving in all these things. Love it. But that's not what... <clears throat> but they're doing something very different in the film. And I love how it gets turned around so that in the film, he asks him uh, for the token he last received because he's trying to destroy him. <laughs> right? Um, he's seeking, of course, for confirmation uh, that this is from Norrell. We see him figure out not only that this was the fairy, that, you know, we see him putting everything together in that one moment, right? Norrell's cover-up has been has been blown uh, in that moment. He knows what Norrell did and how Norrell raised Lady Pole from the dead. He knows... Um, he knows that it was this fairy that did that, and he even suspects clearly what the thing was and the significance of the token um, <clears throat> which uh, which he received. So we see him actively now working, uh, now working against him. And I just love the way that this is that this is focused again. Instead of setting out to try to do the same thing that the book does, I think that you know, again, books and films are different, and they do different things well. The way that Clark is able to put things together there at the end, and to the position into which he's able to place us as readers, I don't think you could place viewers of a film in the same position. It just it doesn't work the same way. And I love the fact that they didn't try, and instead they did a different thing, and yet bring us, I think, to a very similar place. Um, but, uh, but okay, alright. Um, let's look at how Norrell and Strange... So I, I, I want to do a little section on Mr. Norrell here, and the, the sort of the, the fate of Mr. Norrell as it is depicted in this final episode. Uh, oh, man. So here's Childermas, of course, looking at his cards uh, for the last time that we see anyway. Um, 
Now, be thinking as we watch this, and I, and I want you to, to, to you know, go, please go ahead and type observations as we go. Notice the things that they change, the way in which this is being taken in a different direction, but I, and I want you to be thinking about the significance of those changes, right? What do we see? What, what is the film emphasizing through those changes that it makes? So, observations about the changes, and any thoughts you have about their significance. What do your little cards say now? They say you are a liar and a thief. They said that you have been given something, an object of great value. It is meant for me, and yet you retain it. Death is endless a gentleman in such a fashion. Is it the act of a gentleman to steal from me? You dregs of every Yorkshire gutter, apologize! Better a wholesome than a thief. I will teach you better manners. Just so far. Notice stuff so far. First of all, notice how much more overt they have made it that Childermas is playing Lascelles for the the whole time, right? Um, in the book, it's this, you know, he just stands there and permits cells to cut his face and we don't know why he does it it's strange why he does it right I mean it seems uncharacteristic of Childemus to allow himself to be treated like that um, and it's only revealed afterwards of course that he while that was happening he was here it, it almost sounds as if Childemus has deliberately provoked Lascelles to do this, hoping he was going to come over and start carving up his face with a knife so that he could get uh, the opportunity to uh, uh, to swipe the box from his pocket. Um, and so that is to say, it puts Childemus... Uh, so that's not one, one of the things that I consider a major change here. Uh, but I think, but I, 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 to me, it's a really interesting sort of illustration of the way in which they manipulate things uh, on the screen, and then, of course, him bringing out the box at the moment, right? So that that's where things get really interesting. But now, normal mind has been completely oblivious this whole time. That's a change too, right? Um, yeah, Sarah. There's one reference to his past pickpocketing experience. It came, I. Th- think it was in episode 7 at the beginning. Where was it? There was a time when either he mentioned, maybe in his conversation with Strange at Strange's house, that he had uh, um, that he had been a pickpocket in, in, in York. Yeah, Jordan, thank you. It's when Strange finds him pretending to be a shadow. Thank you, Jordan. Um, yeah, I knew that, that there was a reference to it. Uh, Sarah, I happen to notice it as we went past it um, earlier on, but it's it's certainly not not emphasized in the same way. Um, uh, but anyway, so now notice instead of watching all of this sort of transfixed, remember in the book, Norrell is a spectator, a horrified spectator of this entire scene, and the crisis that this leads to for Norrell is, of course, his ultimate choice. Who's he going to choose? Right? Is he going to side with Lascelles or is he going to side with Childemus? Um, and in a sense, of course, in the book, it seems fairly clear, I think, that what he's choosing between, right, is I mean, Lascelles represents fashionable English society, 
right? That's how he met Lascelles. That's that's what Lascelles has been associated with all the way through. Um, and remember, we know Mr. Norrell again and again and again is informed by his desire to be respectable and uh, be viewed as a gentleman first, uh, you know, as well as a magician. Respectability, Philip, exactly. Childemus is different, right? Um, he is like his own, Norrell's own connection with the North. It's, you know, Norrell is a Yorkshireman, and therefore connected back to the land of the Raven King. His own home, Hertview Abbey, used to be one of the abbeys of the King. Um, so we know he has those roots in the North, even though he's been kind of distancing himself from it, but Childemus has remained. And Childemus remains a kind of connection back to his old life, his old magic. That seems to be the choice, in a sense, I mean to 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 kind of, um, I mean it's to simplify this scene a lot, of course. But in a sense, that's the choice that Norrell's making between those two. Um, which are you going to? And he chooses Lascelles. I'm going to choose the gentleman and the gentleman's honor over uh, Childemus and his faithful service and all of the things that he has meant uh, and the things that he is associated with. And so when Childemus says you chose wrong as usual, right? Um, he demonstrates that this is merely the culmination of the wrong choices that Norrell has been making for some time, right? But that is to but that is to say, it's the same choice. It is the choice that Norrell has been making for some time. Um, here, we see already that it's different because he is not standing there, the horrified spectator of this entire incident, seeing the conflict between, you know, Childermas of the North and Lascelles of London. Um, you know, sort of bubbling to the surface in front of him, as had been happening, of course, in the book for some time. He's doing his magic to try to protect the library from Jonathan Strange to, to sort of beef up his, uh, his labyrinth, and then turns to find the conflict already in progress. He's oblivious to the whole thing. I think an important point. This is done. We are safe as long as we remain in this room. Mr. Lassell. He called me a thief! He is a thief. He stole this. But my... Mr. Strange sent it. And my cards say Drawlight is dead. So what comes all this man show when Strange writes that this little run to himself receives gifts from your enemy? Your enemy meant me to take it to Lady Pole. With your permission, sir, that is what I will do. So notice, Lascelles tries to turn this into a question of loyalty. Who's more loyal to, you know, whose loyalty can you count on when Strange arrives? That here's Childemus receiving gifts from Strange. And you'll remember that in the book, Lascelles was sort of suggesting that, uh, you know, Childemus was sort of secretly um, serving Strange and stuff. But that wasn't the issue here. Certainly, <clears throat> I mean, if anything, it's one of the primary th- terms of the choice that Nora was making. Right? That is, he's choosing against loyalty. If there's any question of, 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 you know, if loyalty is an issue in the choice between Lascelles and Childermans, it's pretty clear where the loyalty in both directions lies and should lie, right? With Childermans, not with Lascelles, obviously. Um, <clears throat> so, but in the film, Lascelles is, turns that around, right? He is trying to say, you, I'm the one that you can count on, not him, right? He is unreliable. You want to choose me. Childemus immediately turns by exposing the the box 
right? And opening it and showing Lady Pole's finger and showing that he understands what it is, right? Childemus understands the implications of this. The appeal that Childemus puts to him is not, have I not been loyal to you? You know, don't forget your roots in the North. I get all those things that are kind of associated with the choice in the book. In the film instead, it is explicitly, Mr. Noro, are you going to do the right thing? Right? Um, we can, by using this, we can help Lady Pole. And he explicitly offers to Norrell to do the right thing. No, you do not have my permission. You cannot take it. Goodbye, Mr. Norrell. You've made the wrong choice, sir. As usual. Traitor. Yellow Knight. If I were you, Mr. Lascelles, I would speak more guardedly. You're in the north now. Our laws were made by the Raven King. Our towns and abbeys were founded by him. Mr. Norrell's house was built by him. He's in our minds and hearts and speech. And he's coming back. Jonas, give me the box. Oh, man, and the way in which... Um, you know, so Childemus, you know, standing up for what's right, taking the side explicitly of the Raven King as against Mister Norrell there at the end. And then you think about the the kinds of distinction that Norrell in the film has been trying to establish between modern magic and that old medieval magic, right, which is irrelevant to the modern era. Um, and yet we see through, in part through Lascelles, but even more through Norrell's own actions, how he is, you know, this sort of gentleman's magic, in as much as Lascelles is sort of the ultimate gentleman, right, the one who adheres most firmly to the gentlemanly code, um, and yet we see how horrible he is. Uh, so, you know, the modern world doesn't actually seem to have quite all that as much to recommend it as Norrell seems to suggest, and certainly not uh, very, not morally superior to the medieval magic of the Raven King. Um, so again, I love the way that those stands are uh, the, are set up. Just noticing watching this again, the wonderful way that this sort of sets, the, you know, the way that this sets up the reversal that's going to happen later on, right? With uh, with Norrell saying, "I deny," you know, you you do not have my permission. You can't do this, and and uh, ending with Childemus saying, "And he's coming back," right? Of course, knowing that Norrell himself is going to be the one who's going to bring him back. Uh, Oh, so good. I can't even. I can't even really start to sort of untangle the threads as they connect with each other here. Um, okay. So, conclusion. Conclusion. The main conclusion I would draw here: we see Norrell making not a choice between which world he wants to live in, but ultimately a moral choice. Right? Is he going to do the right thing? He's been saying, or at least he's been saying to himself, that Lady Pole was a necessary casualty. He said to her in the scene when he went back, when she's, like, after she's shot him and she's strapped into her bed, right, um, and raving, I mean, as who wouldn't under the circumstances, um, he, when Norrell shows up and talks to her again, right before she bites him, um, he is, he says to her, that you know, like uh, magic had to be reestablished, and uh, even if some innocent, even if innocent people had to had to suffer, basically, you know, he says to her, like, "I'm sorry, I had to sacrifice you uh, uh, for the sake of uh, reestablishing English magic, but it's done. I don't regret it, and uh, you know, it's 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 how things have to be." Okay, but here he has the chance 
to fix it, right? I mean, that's what Childemus is essentially offering him when he shows him the finger, right? Um, <laughs> that came out wrong. Anyway, um, so when he shows him Lady Bull's finger in the box is uh, what I mean. Um, <laughs> he, uh, uh, he's giving him a chance, because again, he, this is his opportunity, right? He couldn't before go and say, let's undo it all. He wasn't willing to do that. Um, but now he could, this is, gives him the opportunity to get out of the bargain that he made with the fairy without undoing any of the stuff that he's done for modern magic necessarily, right? But he doesn't take that. He chooses instead to continue the cover-up. Um, and that's when Childemus leaves him. So this is a significant... I would say this, in the film, is Norrell's lowest point. Norrell has stooped as low as he will ever stoop. Um, I think that his this is the, this is the nadir of, uh, of Norrell's character's decline. Um, and it's a deeper decline, I think, than anything we see from Norrell in the book. Norrell is never as wicked as this. Um, and this is, an, this is actively wicked, I think. Uh, Nancy, very, that's a very good way to say it. Nancy Fosberg says, Norrell isn't choosing Lascelles over Childemus here. He's choosing his secret. Yes, it's about self-preservation. Ultimately, it's his own fearfulness, right? Um, you know, not only does he not want to uh, admit, own up to what he's done, he doesn't want to confront the fairy, right? That fairy's likely to be seriously ticked off if he if he takes this and uses it to restore Lady Pole, right? There's an there's an outside chance that that fairy is gonna is gonna come after whoever does this, right? But he's fearful. Exactly, Jordan. His name is fearfulness, right? And that's what we see here. So, his fearfulness and his inclination towards fe- the fearfulness, which seems to motivate this, is in my mind the only kind of mitigating factor. But it doesn't, in my mind, mitigate it all that much. This is pretty awful. Let's move forward, or actually rather leap forward, uh, to his confrontation with Strange in the library. It's not that far, I guess, in time in the film, but it seems like a big jump. What do you notice? What's the visual cue that we've gotten there? Where have we seen that? What should we be remembering? It's a clear reference, I think. A clear visual reference. What just happened to them? Where have we seen that before? What does it look like? Yes, Sarah Lagarde, exactly. The madness. The face. Jonathan's transition into madness when he first put the mouse in his mouth. Right? Um, so we see that, uh, the, 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 the connection between his, Jonathan's own deliberate step into madness and the thing that's being done from without now by the fairy, the curse that's been placed upon Jonathan and now, um, in which Norrell has been involved, um, is, um, is connected with it. So we see the link between madness and fairies, right? Um, but uh, anyway, so I, I think that 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 connection is uh, is fascinating. Please, please, Mr. Strange, please! It is not I. It's the fairies' curse. The spell goes stronger and I weaker. I do not have much time. What did you expect? Open in a pathways to other lands, breaking everyone's mirrors. Disreputable magic, sir! This is its consequence! (laughs) 
<laughs> and he's such a bad shot, right? He picks up something and chucks it at Strange. And first of all, it's, it turns out to be, it looks like he's picked up something really heavy that he could brain uh, <laughs> Jonathan with, but it turns out to be just kind of a fragile thing, and, and, and he misses very badly <laughs> with it anyway. Um, uh, Norrell's... Uh, so, uh, and now this commences the great magical duel between Norrell and Strange. I, oh, man, I just love this. Ooh. So insulting. Get out of my life, sir, or I'll give you warning. I shall... I shall... Very worst, Mr. Norrell. I am changed. Do you really believe you can challenge me now? I have warned you. <laughs> oh, God. What are we remembering? I mean, of course, him <laughs> screwing up his face like that again. He's just so cute. Um, again, it's the thing that I think is just I love so much about the casting of Mr. Norrell. He's it's like the fearfulness I was just talking about. I mean, at the end of the day, he's such a little man, right? I mean, he's a very small person, and uh, and it's it's it you know evil genius he is not right and you can't ever even really mistake him for one um what should we be remembering here at the end do you remember um he made a reference in the opening scene you know at the very beginning when he was in episode one um you know about how he's always had to deal with being scoffed at and laughed at this is what drove him to try to make English respectable, or to make magic respectable in England, uh, and to gain in reputation and be treated like a gentleman, and and be you know you think about the sort of the high water mark of Norrell's career, right? After he does the the thing with the uh, the English Navy, right, in at Brest, and he um, comes into the uh, into Parliament, right, and is being you know in the to the wild applause of the of the government um that's this is what he's always that's the the finally his having achieved the reversal of all, what he's been dealing with and that that sense which we got we got a glimpse of there at the beginning his admission that the fact that nobody ever took him seriously and that he was always scoffed at and laughed at and you know you get the impression this is this is one of the reasons why he always hid himself away in his library because he was hiding himself from people because people didn't take him seriously and 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 he was hurt by that and to now have that come back around here don't don't laugh at me it's it's cruel to laugh right and we see here's Norrell back to being you know the child getting picked on by a bully again at the end and the way that this the duel right what, especially, and I'm thinking, 
you know, I bet it's in particular people who hadn't read the book coming into the scene, right? Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, you know, the name of the show leads one to suggest that this is going to be the climactic moment, right? This is going to be the great, you know, now we will see who is the greatest magician between Norrell and Strange. And it immediately turns into it's like the bullying of a child, right? Yeah, in a sense, sure, yeah, Strange shows himself to be the greater magician. Um, I mean, it looks that way, but yet it turns out that sort of isn't really what matters. Rain is ready. I may not have your imagination, sir. How do you think he was going to finish that sentence? Rain is very useful. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's one of the things that he does. He can he can control the weather and make it rain. Very English, Nancy. Yeah, possibly. Um, and Carita, I agree. The boo thing sounds like a brother picking on the sensitive sibling. Yeah, there's something mean spirited, not just in having fireballs um, and excessively flamboyant fireballs, which do look very. Both Sarah uh, Lagarde and John Moline were reminded of the the Wizard of Oz with the fireballs. Um, but yeah, the boo sounds make, sounds really petty, right? Like, I don't even take you seriously at all. Um, I may not be as daring a magician, but... Do yourself a disservice, Mr. North. I'm sorry I laughed. You're not come here to kill me? No, sir. But I've been your enemy. Yes. I've slandered and plotted against you. Why are you not angry? Because I do not have the time. My wife is stolen and I am dying. This darkness will kill me before I can save her if I work alone. Oh. You wish something for me? What is it? the reconciliation between the two. Um, and I gotta tell you, I don't know what it was for you, but the scene that hit me hardest, um, the moment, without question, where I cried hardest watching this episode was when Norrell takes out Strange's book and comes over to him and says, this is the most beautiful book of magic I have ever seen. I was just, oh man, I was just losing it at that moment. That was so, it was so beautiful. Um, oh, I just can't even. Um, then finally, Norrell takes control. Still has all of English magic inside him. There may be something we can do. If we can find him before he takes his last breath, we can instruct him, but we must find him now. I've gone to lost hope. I cannot 
follow him there by the king's roads. The ferry has closed the path. But not for me. But not for me. And mills are not the only way to travel. so nice that he's now adorable and not evil. Um, uh, yeah, 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 or at least now adorable and, and finding strength rather than being weak. So beautiful. Um, and John, what a wonderful point. Uh, John Moline is recalling the single teardrop that we see uh, in Norrell's, on Norrell's face when he's reading Jonathan Strange's book after it comes out and before he disappears all the other ones. Um, and yeah, John, the way in which at the, at the time it looks like him, you know, just sorrowing at his own defeat, right? Maybe being sad that Jonathan Strange has been so deluded, right? That's how I took it. When I saw it the first time, I was like, ah, oh, you can see that he's still, you know, he's, he's lamenting, um, you know, the waywardness of Jonathan Strange and yet, you know, sorrowing for uh, the fact that Jonathan would have gone in this direction. And yet, uh, and yet, yeah, John, when we now look back at that scene in retrospect, um, you know, this moment, that moment with the book works backwards so that now we can begin to see that it's quite likely that he is simply moved by the beauty and, 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 you know, that it's how he is stirred by the book um, that leads to his tears. Um, Again, it's just the way in which, not only tying things together, but the way in which how things come together at the end go backwards to transform what we've seen before, I mean, dang, that is, that is how that's like my definition of uh, brilliant storytelling. I mean, that's, that's how it's when you know <clears throat> you are in the presence of real greatness. Um, and, oh, again, another one of those moments. The way in which... I can't even describe <clears throat> both the, the sort of the intellectual, emotional, and even sort of physical sensation... <clears throat> that I feel when Norrell repeats that line, which has been repeated so many times through the book, and you see, you know, all of those references kind of congealing together in that moment, you know, when he says, uh, the rain shall make a door for me, and I will pass through it. Uh, And it's just, oh, man. It's, of course, the first thing that 
uh, again, the way that it transforms in retrospect, you remember Norrell rushing out of the house, the party house, right, where he first meets Strawlight and Lascelles, out into the alley, and there's Vinculus waiting for him. And as he passes through that door and it slams closed behind him, the first thing that Vinculus says to him is, the rain shall make a door for me, and I shall pass through it. Um, oh, man, so incredible. Um, and again, I was just, I, 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 and then, and, 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 and the way it gets connected with his own sense of inadequacy, right? I mean, the, his pitiful making it rain, like, I'm gonna, I've warned you, right? And the, the adorable screwing up of his face to unleash his most horrific magic at Jonathan Strange, and he just makes it rain, right? Um, and Strange laughs at him, and yet the spell, which was so pitiful that it made Jonathan Strange laugh at him and mock him, even though Jonathan was a, a sorry for it uh, right afterwards, is the spell that ends up enabling Jonathan to rescue his wife. I mean, oh, gosh, he's killing me. Just incredible. Just incredible. Um, sorry. Um, okay. Uh, but let's move on to the Raven King, or I'm going to be keeping you guys up until 1 o'clock in the morning. So um, let's go to Childamus's bloody wound. We're backtracking here a little bit, because again, I love how this gets set up over multiple... This is episode 3, if I'm remembering correctly, the beginning of episode 3. Um, I've been so storing up this clip for quite a while. This is, of course, Childamus wounded, um, so he's been shot. You'll remember the shooting happens at the very end, the very last image that we see, okay, last image we see is of Norrell, but um, the, the final scene of episode two, I'm pretty sure it's episode two, is this spreading pool of blood beneath Childamus on the, on, the, on the sidewalk, right? Episode three then begins um, with uh, both Lady Pole and Childamus being hauled inside. Um, so, okay. <laughs> What I'm, of course, especially interested in here is Chilmus' vision. and we don't know what it is. Right? The tree. The hangman. Right, which was Vinculus's fate. Um. Yeah. The hangman, which is Vinculus's fate, which you know, it's, and when they pull the ball out, and you've got in the vision the raven that comes out of the wound uh, in Childamus's side, which suggests that this is, of course, a vision that's brought to him by the Raven King, and the implication seems to be even that the bullet that hit him is a raven, right? This is from the Raven King. Um, this would seem confirmation of uh, my. Th- theory, or at least suggestion, that the adapters have the same theory, though I think they rather downplayed it much more than was in the book. That is, sorry, I'm rambling. 
My theory, remember, is that it's the magic of the Raven King that's at work there in that moment when Lady Pole comes in and, and attacks Norrell. How did she get there? How does she do sort of the like the superhuman like you know matrix special effects fighting that she does there in that moment? <clears throat> she is clearly and and we have you know Childemus of course who feels magic happening and um and and shows that magic is happening, but that question of whose magic and what was going on, um. It seems to be the magic of the Raven King. Now, as I said, I think the film downplays it because remember, Lady Pole does not have the super ninja skills, John, in uh, uh, in the film. Uh, she's immediately set upon by uh, the footman, uh, you know, the, the coachman, and they they hold her back. She still gets the shot off, um, but she, there's there's no coachman going flying in the film. So they seem to, and not only that, but we also saw her kind of working away at her. Um, at her bonds, um, it seemed like she's just going to work her. That she likely was able to just work her own way out of the uh, of the bindings in the chair. So um, the film seems to suggest, or at least to enable, a totally naturalistic interpretation of that whole sequence. Um, except for the fact that we get Childermas's glass and the and the fact that he saw magic at work. But um, the this vision would seem to suggest that the Raven King at least is taking advantage of the opportunity to send him this message. So, okay, so we've been set up for this, and then, of course, we come to it. Now, I'm going to do these... I'm going to do two these two scenes. Both of them are scenes from episode six, but they don't... Um, I'm not going to show them in order, because I, 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 I want to... I, I just... The reason I want to show them out of order is that I want to be thinking about here how the film has been setting this stuff up. It's so cool. Um, this is near the very end of episode six. So here's Finkulus has led uh, Stephen Black. Remember, he's been saying, um, "I've got to get to my tree." Right. This is his his ultimate goal is to get to his uh, to get to his tree. Did you feel it? Feel what, sir? All the doors shook. Someone is trying to open them. Come, Stephen. The magic of Englishman, fairy. The magic of Englishman is coming back. Who is this? What did I tell you, Baker Slayer? Destiny. Didn't I tell you the hour it must come? What in the world do you think you are talking about, you ridiculous creature? What on earth do you do with him? I tell him his fortune. I tell him that he will be king. That he will be free from you. And how did you come by this fortune, little pig person? <laughs> little pig person. My book. Englishmen and their books. Perhaps you had been... I love how the gentleman lumps Vinculus's tattoos. Like he doesn't, it's like he doesn't even notice any difference. Right? Englishmen and their books, right? Oh, okay, it's just another one of those English books that those Englishmen are always going on about. He doesn't even see anything special about this this book. Advise to sell your book and buy a nicer coat. <laughs> this is John Asclass's book, Fairy, and it tells the fortunes of us all. And what is your fortune? Uh-huh. But it's better than yours. I doubt the truth of that. He has been most impertinent, Stephen. And he is very ugly indeed. Let us kill him. 
Oh no, sir, please, no! Try what you like, fairy. You would discover I am very hard to kill. Are you indeed? For I must confess that it looks to me as if nothing would be easier. Do you dance, rogue? Oh, love it. Do you dance, rogue? Right? The way he's been compelling people to dance all the way through. The parallel between what he does to Vinculus and what he's done to Lady Paul. Oh, my goodness. Um, the difference in their perspectives. The difference in their understanding. Right? We can already see the tide shifting. This is how Vinculus, one of the, you know, one, the, the, Vinculus is about insight. He is the message from the Raven King, right? The way in which, in this moment, this is like the turning of the tide, where we see the gentleman has had it his own way, right? He deceived Norrell. Um, he has been manipulating and working. We see, we've seen him working on Arabella, and even when Arabella rejected him, which seemed to be there's his plan thwarted, right? She won't come of her own free will, and yet he still finishes that scene with the uh, the creepy collection of her handkerchief with her tears upon it, right? So. Um, which, of course, enables him to make her likeness, uh, to give her likeness to the Mossok. So, again, all the way through, it has seemed, even to Jonathan's, like, horribly, tragically ironic summoning of the guy who kidnapped his wife to try to get her to raise him, get him to raise her from the dead, um, the gentleman has had the, the upper hand all the way along, right? He's always the one who sees everything and nobody else sees anything. But here in this moment, when Vincuous says that, uh, he will find that uh, Vinculus is, is is hard to kill. And the gentleman uh, says... Easier. Best that it looks to me as if nothing would be easier. It looks to me as if nothing would be easier. Exactly. But he's wrong. Right? And we see... This is the moment where we see the gentleman does not see all of these things, right? Because we know we've had this tree, this moment, this ravine set up for us from way back in episode three. We know, and Vinculus himself, right? He's got to get to his tree. And of course he, Vinculus, doesn't look the least bit perturbed about, you know, when he looks over and he sees the noose coming down and he's like, ah, okay, right? Um, remember, nor was he perturbed when uh, Childermas's card showed him the, you know, uh, uh, Le Pendu, the hanged man, um, you know, the idea that this was his destiny didn't seem to perturb him in the least bit. The implication seemed to be that he could see more, right? That he could see more than anybody else and understood what was at work there. And now we see that the gentleman himself is included. But now, go backwards. This is just about ten minutes earlier in episode six. This is Vinculus and Stephen arriving there. He's been talking about how he's got to go. He, he has an appointment. He has to get to his tree. And as Vinculus says, there it is, there, this is the moment where we as viewers should be recognizing this from Childermas's vision, right? Oh, yeah, there it is. This is what Childermas was given the vision of after he was shot. 
This is where we shall meet our destinies, Namesley. It does not look a place of present destinies. Nevertheless, I have it on good authority there shall be a meeting here. Who are we to meet? Is it he who intends I to be king? Whom are we going to meet? Right? Is it the one who intends me to be king? Who are they going to meet? What is the meeting that Vincuous is talking about? No soon enough. We'll know soon enough. It's coming! <laughs> the end of that scene suggests pretty clearly, I think, Vincuous is not saying, He's coming! about the fairy, right? It sounds like, and certainly when, you know, what, like, something like ten minutes later in movie time, the gentleman shows up and has what appears to be a fairly climactic meeting with Vincuous, you know, ending in Vincuous's murder, um, you know, that would seem, well, if he had an appointment here at the tree, it must have been with the fairy, right? You would think. Um, but no. There's more going so that when we get to this is why I did them out of order, you see. Um, so that when we get then to the from here to the scene with the fairy, it seems like the fulfillment. So you see how the film has actually done some sort of sleight of hand. When we go back and look at it after the fact, we can see no, you know, uh, happy vincuous back here is talking about more than just the fairy, right? The he who is coming. And the he with with whom he has an appointment, with whom both of them have an appointment in order to receive their destinies, is um, is not uh, uh, the gentleman, but the Raven King. I just absolutely love uh, how this is done. And so now to sort of pursue this line and see what the Raven King is doing. Two more. I'm going to restrict myself to two more Raven King passages. This is, of course. Childermus finding the body of Vincuous. And let the moment of this flame's death be the time the king shall appear. Now, notice, of course, it's at the same time that Norrell and Strange are summoning the Raven King, using the stones and the pears and everything. And notice, of course, the Raven flying in, right, as they are finishing their spell. The Raven alights behind them. Uh, and a, a Raven has also shown up in the library at the same time. <laughs> I was surprised at first that the ravens came in the window. Remember, of course, in the book, it's the books that turn into ravens and then end up scattered all over the place. So I I was first interested that we get the Raven King coming in as this sort of external force, right? Invasion through the windows. And, of course, there are still the books all right there, suggesting, perhaps, uh, reinforcing even, perhaps, that sort of dichotomy between modern magic that comes from books and the Raven King's magic, right? That it's an alien thing to Norrell's library, right? That Anyway, all that seemed to be kind of, to me, suggested by that image of the ravens coming in the window. He looks exactly like the portrait of Windsor. Where's he gone? Where's he gone? 
This is my body, sir. You've been warned, sir. Let him be. Let him be. Put the sun in back! Quickly! He's not yours, all the ladies. Come, he's so sweet. Stop, 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 He's unhanging, right? Uh, notice we never got to see uh, Vinguis strangling to death, and it's like we're uh, treated to that upon his resurrection. Um, okay. Um, the Raven King's hair is awesome. <laughs> right? Notice how much it looks like Childemus's hair. Um... You know, this those scenes when we can see the two of them together, like, you know, here, right? Um, Childemus looks like, you know, he's getting there, right? Give him a, a couple more centuries and his hair will be as awesome as the Raven King's, right? He's like a little, he's like a little junior Raven King uh, here. <clears throat> um, uh, anyway, um... Yeah, yeah, anyway, okay, so, but uh, I don't want to emphasize the hair, though, you know, there's something to be said about hair, and I mean, think about hair and wigs <clears throat> throughout this film, you could totally do a paper on hair and wigs uh, in, uh, in, 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 in this film, um, but uh, that's not what we're going to talk about. Um, and, but yeah, Karita is pointing to the, the sort of, the parallel, right, between the resurrection of Lady Pole and the resurrection of Vinculus, which do in fact frame this film. Right, um, and thinking about you know, Karita is remembering, uh, you know, Mister uh, Drawlight's you know sort of pretentious declarations, right? How she's restored to to life and to dance, right? Um, and so is Vinculus. And you're right, Karita. He's not nearly as lovely a corpse uh, as Lady Pole, um, but um, uh, but anyway, uh, it, it, it's. The significance of that resurrection, and, and again, the way in which this we see Lady Paul's actual resurrection, we see Jonathan's attempts to resurrect, um, we see his, you know, reanimation anyway of the Neapolitans um, in the peninsula. We see his attempts to resurrect, uh, 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 to to resurrect Arabella, even by the same means that he reanimated um, uh, the Neapolitans. And then his desire to get the gentleman to do it. And finally, Vinculus's resurrection. The way that we get this sort of cumulative effect, and again, the way in which that final moment transforms the others, just as 
the resurrection of Lady Pole was the thing that ushered in the era of modern magic, right, into England. So at the end, we have the resurrection of Vinculus is what begins the new age of magic, right? Um, uh, yeah, anyway, it's... Um, Oh man, there's just so much to uh, so much to talk about. And yes, Nancy, of course, Norrell's wig in this one episode. There would be a lot to say about Norrell's wig in this one episode. But again, notice how well, you know. And yet he insists on wearing it, right? No matter how wild it gets and how crazy he looks wearing it. Of course, but he's like right there with uh, with with Strange, right? And Strange's wild hair. And then of course the. Okay. Anyway, I said I wasn't going to do the paper on representation of hair and wigs in, uh, in this film, but you see, you could totally do it. But anyway, let me not just get merely distracted by that with the de- this R one view of the depiction of the of the Raven King here. Um, what other things did you notice? Did you think about here? We have sort of how dark and ominous he looks, right? When we finally see the Raven King. It's hard not to remember all those things that Norrell has been saying, right? How disreputable the Raven King is. And you look at him and you're like, whoa, uh, yeah. I mean, seriously, like, would you... This guy. I mean, anybody really happy to see him show up? I mean, yeah, Karina, he looks... He looks like a bad guy. He absolutely does. Mark, he's certainly not a gentleman. I agree. Um, but, I mean, he... Um, <laughs> Michael Chaskowski says he looks like something out of a Japanese horror movie. Yeah, and Sarah Lagarde points out very correctly he is not who the gentleman with the thistle-down hair would choose. Right, you think about the um, what he values. Um, and that's, of course, a wonderful thing to come back with, oh, Sarah, you could go like the what a great paper you could write on the status of gentlemen in Mr. In Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, right? Oh, there's uh, there's so much. Um, but um, uh, yeah, Mark Ingram, I was actually thinking of Blackadder, too, uh, when I, uh, when I saw him. Um, but, um, yeah, Jordan says he's not very physically imposing, but he's clearly somebody you would not want to mess with. Agreed. Um, agreed. But again, nor is it somebody that you would trust. I mean, it, it, even Childemus, of course, is not happy to see him, right? Childemus sees him and thinks he's obviously, you know, takes him for a threat. Like, you must be a, you must be a, a thief. You're, you know, there's something, right? Um, he who had just been expressing his loyalty to the Raven King um, and his anticipation of the Raven King's return when confronted by the Raven King seems to be merely alarmed by him, right? So again, he bears out all the things that Norrell said about him, in a sense. And yet, um, we see that, of course, Norrell didn't really have the whole picture. Um, The other element that I have to mention, though I didn't I restrain myself from uh, clipping the passage, is um, the sacrifice of the books, right? The, when the books do turn into ravens, but the way in which the film transforms that into an act of an, the ultimate sacrifice by Norrell, right? When Norrell agrees to give his entire library up 
for the sake of achieving this. That he's going to exchange his entire library for the chance to defeat the gentleman with the, with the thistle-down hair. And if there is a moment where Norrell reverses that worst of choices that he made when he refuses, you know, he chooses his own fearfulness, his own cover-up um, over, you know, the life of Lady Pole, as we were discussing before. Um, he he reverses it, right, in that... And it is, Carita, a bargain that he makes, right? Um, but um, But it's a bargain to reverse that earlier bargain, and it's just as before he was bargaining away her life for his own profit, right? Sacrificing an innocent, the you know, 75 years of the life of this innocent woman for the sake of the furtherance of his own career, even really his own ego, right? So that he can get the adulation that he was always denied, uh, you know, instead of the scorn that he received previously. Um, now we see him instead bargaining to sacrifice everything that matters to him most. Yeah, James, I love when he's when he's trying to bargain it to half the books or two thirds of the books, but he does he does eventually uh, he does eventually do it. Um, so again, the way that that bargain sort of you know manages to sort of, not only does it serve you know does it show the opposite impulse in him um, you know a, a real moment. And you could say literally a moment of repentance of turning in the opposite direction, um, yet it also literally corrects it. Right? It's how to undo it. How to take how to um, take the gentleman out of the picture and undo the damage that he's done. He Norrell has done um, by, as Strange says, letting that monster loose on the world. Um, again, this everything ties together so well. It's so good. Um, all right. Okay, creepy Raven King. Let's look at the end of the Noro and Strange, especially the end of Noro here. She's Nidley! She's Nidley. Well, Mr. Strange, no English magician has ever killed a fan. I'm not at all sure how we did it, but it was done. Let's go to my wife. <laughs> Can I just say, next to that <laughs> look that we got from Noro before, um, that look right there, I mean, oh, but I'm telling you, how adorable is Mr. Noro? Look at that. Look at that. Let's go to my wife. And with that hair. England is full of magic. And it should be used. You are a great magician, Mr. Noll. And you are my friend. Goodbye, sir. Marvelous anti-climax. We're trapped. We're still in the darkness. He's dead. The spell cannot outlive him. I do not know. Can it? We know so little about this magic. I cannot die. Well, 
course we get that you know sort of that final reconciliation right um you know you are a great magician mr norrell and you are my friend and goodbye and uh but then of course them still suffering together and norrell standing by him and you know don't be afraid and that's uh, so beautiful and in that context in the context of this sort of reconciliation between them which is so much more it's so much more powerful. I mean, it's it's the the emotional impact that it has. It's going for the film is going for a much greater emotional impact there than we saw in the book. Right in the book, we see that you know the two of them are in the library, you know, sort of looking things up and they can't escape. But it's there isn't this sort of climactic moment, right? Um, uh, you know, there's there's no do not be afraid. It's just the two of them hanging out together. Right, and again, and I love how that works in the book, and I think it's great. Um, this is different; it's going for a different effect, and it achieves a very, di- a very different effect. We see the two of them, um, you know, looking like um, <laughs> James Pace says that somebody is missing the opportunity of selling Mister Norrell troll dolls with the hair and the smile. Um, I agree, James. That really needs to happen at the very least. That should be a uh, that should be a like a a, a meme, right? Uh, you know, Mr. Norrell on a on the top of a pencil with his wig, right, and his big smile saying it is done, right? Um, I'm telling you, absolutely, it's gold. Anyhow, um, uh, okay, so and we see the tower being taken away, and that is the moment that Vinculus tells us. Um, that uh, they were only ever a spell. They were the spell that the the Raven King has been spinning, is his verb, which I think is a very interesting verb. Of course, we're seeing the actual physical rotation of the funnel, Um, but but it's still a really interesting verb for him to choose in that moment. Um, They 
are they are the spell. And of course we see this to be true, but again, I, I still find in the film as in the book that Vinculus's statement rings a little bit false. That is, it's true, but it's only a very partial view. There's more to it than that. And certainly, the greatly increased emotional impact of the end of Strange and Norrell's relationship there, and the power of their reconciliation, I think even more than ever really gives the lie to Vinculus's rather simplistic perspective there at the end. Um, So... Anyway, I think that that's... Uh, um, yeah. Oh, Jordan is asking, what did I think about the way the Black Tower was uh, uh, was depicted? Um, in the book, it's more like a pillar of glass instead of a violent tornado. Yes, I agree. Um, I like it. Well, first of all, I actually think a pillar of darkness is really great example of one of those things which you can describe in a book but when you actually attempt to depict it visually it doesn't have the same impact as the concept does there's a there's a difference between the image that is evoked in your imagination when you read it on a page and it it can be so hard or really even impossible to make that real in a way that it has the same kind of impact. I mean, because the impact is determined not just by the f- the sort of physical or visual picture that you conjure in your mind, but by the conception, um, the conceit, to use the 17th century, or to use the John Donne word. Um, uh, it's not just an, an image, it's a conceit. And um, that is the... Tower of, of Darkness. And it, it works really importantly in that way. But again, on film, in a visual medium, I just, I don't think... Because you can't do a conceit in the same way on film. It's, I'm not saying you can't do a conceit on film, um, but you can't do it the same way. You certainly can't do it just by slapping up the visual image, because it's just an image when you're looking at it, right? Um, so... By transforming the pillar of darkness into that swirling, violent tornado, um, <clears throat> I think they're able to convey things that are conveyed in the book, but would not be vi- be conveyed by the visual image, by a faithful representation of the visual image in the book. Um, the fact that this is an act of violence, right? That this is you know just like a you know to be right under a tornado is terrifying right so that that sense of terror the way in which everyone looks at it and is terrified to see it right because it's like it's going to come for you next right it's dangerous to be close to it even right um which again it seems to be exactly how people did feel about it in venice and yet um we get that conveyed really viscerally by showing it be like a tornado. The fact that it's active as well, it's not inert, right? You know, that we see it swirling and, and, uh, uh, and you know, sort of grinding them. Um, uh, we have, um, uh, again, that, that, that seems to me an important element of it, right? It's doing something to them. It's not just static and it conveys that. Um, even the connection, and this just occurred to me, um, but I love it. The connection to the mill 
right? Remember the first time that Jonathan Strange does the Raven King's magic on purpose when he reanimates the Neapolitans and he cuts his he cuts his hand with the knife and holds out the blood and the wheels in the mill right above his head start turning around, right? Though there's no wind outside. So I love the way that it's anticipated uh, with the windmill. I, we said at the time when we talked about it how much I love the windmill scene uh, and how, how, how cool I thought that was as sort of a, a symbol of how, you know, English magic is sort of grinding back into, uh, into action again. Um, but it works, um, um, it works even, um, um, even better. I, I mean, again, it's given new meaning by the Tower of Darkness that we see in the end. Um, <clears throat> anyway, I, I want to... Um, two more. Two more passages. I want to come back to Stephen Black. said I would, and I want to. Um, uh, okay. Um, Stephen Black. Okay, so let's back to Stephen Black a little bit. I want to focus on the way that he is used as a weapon. Let me kind of give you... I'll give you my thesis, in a sense, here at the beginning of the our final little discussion here, our Stephen Black discussion. Um, and that is, one of the things at stake here is essentially the free will of people. And this is a struggle between the fairy and humanity, you know, between the fairy and humanity, ultimately. Well... Or is it ultimately? I mean, ultimately, again, I kind of think it's probably between the gentleman and the Raven King. But anyhow, um, uh, Stephen is in the in the culmination here. I think that Stephen himself becomes like the representative of humanity. Remember the parallels that have been established. Um, the way in which, and the film does such an elegant job of this. Remember when we were talking about the scene with him seeing the slave ship and his, you know, uh, his birth, right? And the way in which the film was establishing the parallel between the way he was taken, he as a as a as a Negro uh, slave was taken into slavery by the English, right? And the way that he is abducted from his his people are abducted from Africa and taken into slavery. Um, and deprived of their names, and the parallels between humans taken by the fairies and deprived of their names, like Jonas Glass was. Um, so you know the, the way that those parallels are established, and yet the gentleman is is in that moment. It's the closest we see, I think, to Stephen's loyalty being actually uh, effectively shifted. Um, his, certainly, his loyalty to the to. Uh, the English, more broadly Christians or, or humans, right, um, is being kind of undermined there. And yet, again, we can see the parallel between the slavery that the uh, that the fairy is putting him under and the uh, slave and you know the African slavery um, that Stephen is associated with. So Stephen becomes sort of this this issue. Uh, becomes really sort of the focal point with Stephen, and I love the way that the film really brings this out. That it's not just his his role, Stephen's role, as the nameless slave who becomes the vehicle of English magic and the instrument by which uh, the gentleman is ultimately overthrown. This is not just uh, sort of him being the stand-in for, parallel to, and even in a sense representative of the Raven King, um, instrument of also really the the Raven King as we get in the book, 
but it you know this issue it's the fact that he's the nameless slave is what is what the film I think really comes to emphasize his own role his own freedom uh, his own ability to choose now you may kill them now you may kill them notice the gentleman comes in with what seems to be the assumption that Stephen agrees right Stephen's just been wishing he could slaughter the English and now the gentleman is giving him the permission to do that of course, Stephen has again and again shown the gentleman that his will does not go in that direction. He has already multiple times begged the gentleman not to do what he's doing. He has asked for the freedom of Lady Pole. Um, he was obviously anti-murdering the, the you know uh, King George. Um, you know, there, there have been several times he was begging for Vinculus's life in one of the passages that we looked at earlier today. But again, still the gentleman is making an, a, a presumption about Stephen's will. Though, interestingly, recognizing that he has will, right? He's not just... The gentleman does not believe himself to be dominating Stephen. See what I mean? He has despised you. He took your name. And she has treated you like a servant. And, of course, I do love the fairy magic that we see with the ears and the mouth and the eyes and the... Uh, you know, the, uh, but again, even notice how the, all of the ways in which he exerts his magic on Segundus and Honeyfoot and, and Sir Walter Pole um, and Lady Pole here, of course, are all about their their senses, right? Segundus can't speak, Honeyfoot can't hear, uh, uh, Sir Walter Pole can't see the way that they are being shut away from the world, right? Blind, deaf, and mute. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> making them helpless, right? But also sort of emphasizing uh, that they are oblivious, right? He sees himself as only here revealing, in a sense, what was true. Anyway, he's ex- very explicit about that, especially when he's talking to Sir Walter, right? You have been blind. You have blinded yourself all along. Now he makes him blind, right? He takes his eyes in order to make it become literally true. I command all of English magic to put itself into the hands of the Black King, the King in the North, the nameless slave. Notice the the emphasis, the Black King, right? Love that little just touch of emphasis uh, to to show the you know to to really drive home the parallel. Notice how Stephen, with both hands holding the sword, it's clear here, clearer here even than it was with King George, that he is holding the sword with two hands in order to fight it, like the one hand is trying to strike and the other hand is holding back. We can see Stephen's body literally divided, right? Half of him is is under the control of the fairy and in line with the fairy, and the other half is resisting it. So here's Stephen being torn. He has made you a slave. He's made me as much a slave as you have. I command them to break him. Notice the gentleman doesn't even listen to that, right? Stephen is saying, Stephen makes the parallel between the English slavery of Stephen the black man and the gentleman's slavery of Stephen the Englishman, Stephen the Christian. And bind him to kill the master of lost hope. Kill him. Kill him. (laughs) 
Jonathan binds him with his spell, binds him to kill the master of lost hope, right? And then again, I love the juxtaposition with the fairy saying, kill him, kill him. So we see both of them on both sides, right? Uh, Jonathan and the fairy both trying to dominate and bind Stephen, and both of them trying exactly, James, to use him as a weapon, as their weapon. There go the books, turning into ravens. Flying back out the same windows they flew in before. Speaking. I'm just noticing that. Whose voice is that? Is that Norrell? My library. My books. I mean, it's what he would say, but it doesn't sound like him. And it doesn't sound like his voice at all. Yeah, John, it does sound to me more like Childemus. Sharon, I wonder if it's the Raven King. The library has just been given to him, after all. I don't know. I, I, that's re- I never even thought of it. I didn't notice that at all before. I guess I just listened to the words and thought it was Norrell. It doesn't sound like Norrell. And again, Norrell's just given up his library. It's not his library anymore. They aren't his books. That's definitely not Norrell's voice, is it? Oh no, the wig! Go get your wig! <laughs> the wig is blown off when the, when the ravens come in. I'm telling you, there's a whole paper there. That's just what the raven kick. This is strange. This is normal. That is the water pole's butler! <laughs> Okay, and that's the moment that I briefly freaked out. When all of a sudden, <laughs> Stephen, like a bullet, comes through Stephen from the back. Uh, and I was like... LaSalle's? Are you kidding me? LaSalle's <laughs> shoots Stephen Black in the back? What on earth is going... So this is the one moment... When this is when I had my moment of doubt, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, they've gone off the rails!" Like it's it's you know all of a sudden train wreck, and I was afraid, uh, and uh, uh, because this is exactly the kind of see in my mind one of the one of the ways when adaptations fail is when sort of elements from the book are retained but kind of glommed together in ways that just aren't. Not only do they not go in the direction that the book went, but they don't even make sense on their own, and I was like, oh my goodness. Uh, that's what, what I thought we were doing there for a minute. Um, but, like I said, my faith is soon restored. 
um, it will be restored within an, a, a, a minute and 19 seconds. Um, what do we get here, though? Notice how uh, st- notice how how Stephen is again. How is he depicted? He's depicted as the the victim again, right? First, he was the weapon. Then he gets shot, right? He's he's poor 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 marginalized, totally marginalized. Stephen, even the spell, which was meant to empower him, right? Meant to empower the nameless slave. Um, has seemed to marginalize him. He's brought here and then shot in the back by Lascelles. Um It seems like, A, this spell has backfired in a profound way. Right Again, that marvelous... Uh, it's not the Raven King. It's Walter Sir Walter Pole's butler, right? In that lovely Yorkshire accent that Norrell has. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's... it's um, Again, it seems like again backfiring in the worst possible way, and then literal, literally backfire, I suppose, um, uh, when when Lascelles shoots him. Uh, so clearly, everything has gone awry. Kind of like it might look like things have gone awry when Vinculus is hanged, right? Stephen himself might have thought that things, perhaps, the whole destiny thing wasn't really working out properly when uh, Vinculus was hanged by the gentleman. Um, that's kind of how it looks here. I have but one shot, and I mean to use it. Mr. Lascelles, come here. Come here by my side. I will do no such thing. What have you done? Isn't it a perfect fate for Lascelles, Nancy? I love this. I like this, I have to admit, I like that as Lascelles' fate even better than the fate Lascelles gets in the book. Um, this, Though there's a parallel, too, I would say. Um, in the book, he is sort of... He, we see him adhering to this, you know, really rigidly adhering to this sort of gentleman's code of conduct, right? And his uh, his making fun of Childemus for not fighting the guy when he met the guy, um, and how he is now, like, sort of, he has to, you know, sort of continue following this code again and again. Um, but, um, I, so we see him kind of trapped within himself, but here we see his, the this whole fancy, modern, gentlemanly world that Lascelles, uh, we see how that it's it's turns out to be brittle, uh, hollow, Carita, as you say, right? Um, and it ends up just shattering uh, in uh, under the pressure. I mean, I I like it. I think it, it, it it's 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 a fun symbol that I think works really well. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, very cool, Donna. I missed that line. I missed that line. Donna says that before he shoots draw light, Lascelles says he won't let draw light shatter his reputation. 
Yes, yes. If you shatter Noral, you shatter my reputation. Yes, yes. Good, Donna. Very good, very good. Um, so yeah, we have it. This being the literalizing of uh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Of course, of course, of course. It would have been set up by a line earlier on in the film. Um, but anyways, okay. So here's was Stephen shot, victimized, marginalized, and the gentleman's mourning. gracious Stephen. What have they done to you, my beautiful, gracious Stephen? The one moment when the gentleman seems legitimately humane, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Keep going. Last scene. Oh, the longest way. magic. Oh, Robert. This is Norrell, Gilbert Norrell, action hero. I love this. <laughs> Blend in, Mr. Norrell. Cast your defiance into the teeth of the King of Fairy. Then duck. <laughs> they all part. And he's left crouching there in the middle. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Um. It is foretold that I should become. Now, notice what just happened. I, Stephen, was... I mean, the shot... We've seen two people shot, right? We've got the parallel between Childermas being shot and uh, and Stephen being shot. Well, of course, we had draw light also, but um, Childermas was shot... When we see the wound, when we first see him on the ground with the pool of blood spreading out behind him, it looks like he was probably shot mortally. Um... But at the beginning of episode three, when we see him on the, you know, on the operating table, having the, uh, the ball very, very slowly <laughs> extruded from his wound, um, uh, we, um, we can see that it's, it's, it's up in his shoulder, right? That the, the wound is, is not vital. Stephen is, sh- I mean, the ball comes out right in the middle of his chest. Um, so I'm thinking that we are supposed to understand that the gentleman has just resurrected Stephen. Um, Stephen was killed, or at least mortally wounded, and has been... You know, when the gentleman is mourning over him there, um, he is bringing Stephen back. He has the power to do that. That's fairy magic, right? Which means that we don't just get Vinculus and Lady Pole as the frame. We get Vinculus and Stephen Black as the frame. And remember... Uh, 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 Vinculus' own assertions about the links between the destinies of Stephen Black and himself, right? 
and freedom, right? Um, and becoming and becoming free. So, okay, so if and he that means that he himself now in the final act of irony, he himself, the gentleman, participates in this, just like the way that Jonathan also has to take has to agree to the compact, right? The bargain. It's not just that the wife is abducted; he has to agree to the wife being abducted or deceived into that, so too the gentleman has to participate in his own destruction um, by bringing Stephen back and in this way empowering him, uh, Stephen, to overthrow him. So we see the parallel there. Isn't that cool? Yes. I wish you could keep us together. You in England, I am lost hope. It is destined that I should kill the king and take his place. And now I see that you are that king. Oh, Stephen. Oh, Stephen. Now he seems... Now his own weakness is exposed, right? His own lack of sight. He's been boasting about this prophecy from the very beginning. He seemed determined, he was was determined, explicitly said he was going to take that prophecy. You know, he, 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 he could see the future that Stephen was meant to be a king uh, and he was going to use that as, take advantage of that and use Stephen as his tool, right? He explains this to Stephen. Those magicians are hard to kill. But when Stephen is king of England, then he'll be able to, he'll be able to do that. But now we see the gentleman's own blindness, right? That thing which we got a glimpse of at the end of episode six now finally comes back to him. And and ironically, and a little bit tragically, and remember back to the scene with Jonathan and the fairy um, that we were looking at at the beginning of class tonight, with we seeing Jonathan as this sort of broken and desperate. Um, creature and, and the fairy's lack of mercy for him and lack of complete lack of sympathy. Um, and we now see this being reversed <clears throat> on him, right? And him seeming to say, you know, he's just shown through raising Stephen, he's just shown um, a, uh, uh, you know, a sort of a genuineness of affection for Stephen that we didn't really see so clearly through most of the film to this point. And yet Stephen, uh, uh, essentially turns that against him. Mercilessly, because he does not show mercy. Even the irony of his name here, right? She has to remember that she is Mrs. Strange, like that that they're not strangers. Even the the, the play, even the way that the play on their very names uh, is worked into this moment of recognition is so cool. And of course, we already saw them play on the name um, before, like when uh, he was in the peninsula. And uh, you know Wellington is trying to figure out what to call him, right? He's you know he's he's gonna gonna call him uh, Merlin, and and he's, and uh, and Jonathan says you could yeah, uh, exactly, Michael. He says I am strange, right? We see the play on that the the play on on his uh, on his name there, Michael. Exactly in that moment, we can see it being played on again here, right? The problem is that she is he is a the problem is he's Mister Strange uh, to her, right?
I love how people don't just step through mirrors in the film. They come soaring through mirrors. is pointing to the parallel with the moss oak, right? Just as Arabella's face emerges, right? As the, the, the wood splits open, so his face is vanishing into it. Yeah, Neil, that's fantastic. <laughs> Love the uh, raven feather down there, right? By Jonathan's head. Um... I am the nameless slave, and I serve no master now. Uh, the irony of that, right? The the identity which he embraces. Um, so we see on the one hand, like the 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 the, the, the sort of the wonderful irony of him embracing his identity as the nameless slave. He rejects his own name, right? He won't serve the gentleman or won't allow the gentleman to use the gentleman's knowledge of his true name, which was associated with liberation before, right? Find out who you really are. Throw off the English fetters that have been binding the... You can tell yourself that you're not a slave. You know, you can be all like, no man standing on English soil can possibly be a slave, but you're a slave, right? You were christened, you were given a name. You're, the name Stephen Black is the name of slavery. Right? As we talked about in the book, though, that though it's emphasized, I mean, it comes across less powerfully, I think, is the fact that his name is Black, and so the, the fact that his Christian name, the name that he has been given, uh, is, uh, is just merely descriptive of his Blackness, of his otherness, right, of his separation from English society. Um, and so he, he, he's not Stephen Black anymore at the end. He's not, so the fact that the nameless slave becomes his name 
right? Um, that as he fulfills and embraces his destiny, um, so he, by ceasing to be a slave and serving any master, he's not going to serve Sir Walter Pole. He's not going to serve the gentleman. He is going to establish his own destiny, or rather fulfill his destiny, but it's also the destiny of the Raven King, right? That seemed, which seems to be what the Raven King has sort of manipulated all along. So the way in which Stephen ends up as both using his, exerting his free will, refusing to be a slave anymore, and yet embracing that identity, which is as a slave... Right, is embracing the name of the nameless slave. He is serving the destiny that has been laid out for him by the Raven King. So again, we've got the English, you know. So we've got the the English enslaving uh, uh, the Negroes over here, and we've got the. And I hope you understand, by the way, that I'm using the word Negro because that's the that's the 18th, 19th century word. Uh, just. I'm, I'm being period in, in saying that, um, and and then you've got the fairies enslaving the you know the Christians over here. Well, then you've got the Raven King, and his the destiny that he is laying down, and the, and the spell that he is casting that all of the people in the book are being taken up into. Um, so the way in which you have simultaneously this assertion of free will, and yet um, recognition of fate, this kind of submission to fate. Again, I am, no, I declare that I am the nameless slave, right? That kind of says it all. So in the end, I think, the reason I wanted to end with Stephen Black is that I find Stephen Black to be um, a really marvelous sort of encapsulation of what the film, how the film depicts, like, I don't know, the human condition at the end. Uh, human condition is such a horrible way to describe it. But you see what I mean? The position that humans are in. Um, there's so much that the film is emphasizing about, again, that that the, ins- the importance of free will and entering into bargains and things like that. Th- people do have the power to determine who they are. Just as Jonathan is looking for a career at the beginning, right? Trying to define and establish who he is and what he's going to be. I mean, in all of these ways, we see that um, we see that uh, 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 being emphasized. You know, that being emphasized. Mr. Norrell in trying to establish respectability. Jonathan trying to, um, you know, when he turns to try to bring back English magic and the magic of the Raven King. All these things, all these things, you know, all over the place, it all comes together. And I feel like Stephen Black's emancipation at the end and his becoming king of Lost Hope, which will no longer be Lost Hope, is uh, um, is just the, 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 in my view, the sort of the ultimate culmination of where people end up. And it's why I, um, it's why I think the ending of the film is hopeful. Again, lost hope falls, right? Um, And it doesn't explicitly assert that hope is regained, right? But, um, you know, when the funnel cloud disappears into the air and Vinculus essentially dismisses Strange and Norrell as they were never anything but a spell that the Raven King was casting, it's like, well, yeah, that's true from one way of looking at it, but that's like saying Stephen Black was always a nameless slave, right? Unimportant and enthralled. Well, yeah, that's literally what nameless slave means, 
and I can see that point, you know, from one perspective, you could say that about, but that's not the whole story, right? Um, that's only half the story. I am the nameless slave, and I serve no, you know, and I will be, uh, and, and, and nobody, you know, no one will be my master. Um, the second half is also true, and I think that we can see that with Norrell and Strange at the end as well, right? We can hear that same thing echoing through Norrell's statement, I am not afraid, right? One, his name shall be fearfulness. Not anymore, right? Um, even in Strange, you know, I didn't do, uh, I didn't clip for you Strange's final uh, meeting with Arabella, but even there, um, you know, the he is trapped and separated from Arabella, and yet he is at liberty. Um, we can see it there as well. So it just, the complexity and delicacy of what the film is capturing about, you know, sort of the position of humanity. It's so interesting, and it's so subtle, and so gorgeously captured. I'm just... Whew. Um, yeah, good, Sarah Lagarde uh, pointing about Lady Pole's assertion of her independence at the end. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, we can see that we can see the, uh, the uh, uh, similar sort of thing uh, there, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well... Thank you. Uh, let me just conclude by thanking you guys fervently. Um, I, as I've been saying since the beginning, I had never read this book. I had never seen this miniseries. I don't know when I would have discovered it had you not compelled me to by voting this book in. Um, but thank you so much for doing that. Uh, this has been absolutely incredible. Um, I have, thanks to your your votes, I have now discovered one of my new favorite fantasy novels and one of my new favorite movies of all time. Uh, so just, I cannot thank you guys enough uh, for uh, compelling me to undergo this fantastic journey of discovery, and thank you for coming along with me. Um, it has been really delightful. I hope that you've enjoyed uh, if you have enjoyed the last 14 weeks even half as much as I have, uh, then uh, certainly this experience will have been uh, a wonderful success. So thanks very much. Enjoy your holiday season here at the end of the year, and we look for I'll look forward to coming back together with you at the beginning of January, January 6th, and we will start our discussion of the shaping of Middle-earth. Uh, as I say, keep an eye out for the webpage with the actual week-by-week uh, -week reading assignments and stuff. I haven't made those up yet, so I'm... Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still working on that, but thanks again, everybody. And I will see you in several weeks. I hope you can join me for the shaping of Middle-earth. And thanks again for Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Bye now. <laughs>